0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you again. Uh, we're going to start a new series on Sola Scriptura, Scripture Alone. It's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this October. October 31st actually is 500 years ago when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Church. And if you know the story, Luther wasn't trying to leave the Roman church. He was trying to have a discussion about certain practices that the church had. It would be much like today if we posted online on a forum board and we had 95 theses about how to fix what was broken in the church. Well, he didn't anticipate what the Lord was going to do through that, and the reformation that was going to happen, not only a reformation in theology, but a reformation in spirituality and being like Christ. Um, and it was massive, and it's changed the world. And so this is the 500th anniversary, and the reformers, they held to five distinctives. you might have heard of these, the five solas of the Reformation. They're in Latin. Uh, sola Scriptura is the first one. Scripture alone is what enforces and commands our belief and action. The second one was Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Christus, in Christ alone. So it's right out of Ephesians 2 that we're saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that it's in Christ alone and then soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so what I want to do over these next eight times I'm preaching is I want to go through this idea of sola scriptura and and just hit it from a lot of different angles and talk about not only that God has revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures, not only has He given us a Scripture that is such it's God-breathed, as 2 Timothy 3 says, so that when Scripture speaks, God speaks, but we can trust it, it's sufficient, it's all we need for life and godliness. We have to submit to its commands because it holds authority, because submitting to the authority of Scripture is ultimately submitting to the authority of Christ. And He's our King, and this is His Word to us. It also is something that we should... Have as part of our our daily spiritual disciplines of reading the word and praying and meditating on the word, and so I'm going to look at that and uh, end with a message on Psalm 119 on loving the word. And don't worry, um, we're not going to go line by line through Psalm 119. We would be here for a week. It's the longest psalm in uh, the Bible. Well, it's the longest psalm in the Book of Psalms. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It uh, takes about 20 minutes to read through. That's how long it is. But here this morning, I want to start in Psalm 19. In Psalm 19 and talk about the gift of God's revelation. The, there was a, the Reformation came on the heels of the Renaissance. And if you pull back into your mind from high school history and the Renaissance, it was this uh, it was this. Culture and art and humanitarian and uh, philosophical revival of going back to the sources. Ad fontes is the Latin phrase. Back to the sources. And the idea was, man, we're going to go back to the Greco-Roman world and look at their culture and their philosophy and their art and their way of thinking and we're going to go back to that because all of this time in between was just the dark ages in their mind. There was illiteracy, there was the burning of books, there was wars, there was famine, there was disease, none of it was good. And they thought in their culture that by going back to Greco-Roman ideals, that there would be a, another golden age in Western civilization. Well, the, the Renaissance proclamation of going back to the sources became the Reformation cry of going back to the sources in regard to theology and doctrine, back to the Word of God, back to Scripture. And John Calvin, another reformer, this was his life's work in Geneva. Calvin gets a bad rap in history as being someone who's cold and detached and austere and kind of a boring, dry person. But when you read him, he's not. You read his institutes, he's very warm, he's very pastoral. He believed his life work was proclaiming the Word of God and instructing believers in the Word's wholesome doctrine. And uh, he had this overwhelming passion to proclaim the word of God. He could have said from 1 Corinthians 9.16, I'm constrained to preach the gospel. But what he said is God's servants ought to speak from the inmost affections of the heart. See, the reason Calvin was so excited to preach the scriptures was because it had affected his heart so much that he had a desire and love for the Scriptures because in them Christ is revealed. He called them the pure Word of God that are free from every stain or defect and they give us a certain and unerring rule. And when he said that, he was talking about this idea of sola scriptura. What do we mean by that? It doesn't mean it's just me and the Bible and I don't have to listen to anybody who's gone before me. That's what some people think it means. It's more like solo scriptura, me and the Bible and nobody else. And and you might have met people like that where they'll say, oh, my Christianity is my private thing, it's just me and the Bible and Jesus, and I don't need church or I don't need people or I'm suspicious of those who've gone before us, I don't want to listen to what they have to say. That's not what the reformers meant. It's not what we mean. What Calvin meant was, oh, tradition and the people who've gone before us and the theology that goes before us, it's really helpful, it's really good, we stand on the shoulders of giants. But when it comes to what is it that tells us what to believe and how to live, it's the Bible alone. Ultimate authority rests in the Bible for what to believe and how to live. Scripture alone possesses the authority to command belief and action, so He also believed, though, that Scripture speaks clearly. And this was one of the Reformation principles, is the clarity of Scripture. By that time, in the 1500s in the 16th century, the the leaders of the church at that time didn't believe that the common person in the pew could understand the Bible, that they would misinterpret it, that only could be interpreted by the leadership, by those who had been ordained. And Calvin and the Reformers believed, no, Scripture is clear it's meant to be in the language of the people. It's why Luther did a translation in German. It's why Calvin did a translation in French. It's why Wycliffe translated it to English. There was this desire to get the Bible into the hands of the people so that they could understand the Word of God, and it was clear, and it would, it would then not only teach them what to believe and how to live, but it would make them like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, as we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus In the mirror of the word, the reformer said, we're transformed into that same image. And so why is this important? Why do we want to spend eight weeks on this? Because we're people of the book. This is what we believe is, it tells us what to believe and how to live. This is what's going to change us to be like Christ. In the word of God, it's not a lucky rabbit's charm. We don't rub this on us and think that somehow we're like Jesus. I remember uh, Chris Kieskinen, who's an elder down at Grace Bible Church. He's run the youth group for years. He, at summer camp, sometimes he would take a Bible and he would just fling it across the room and throw it across the room and everybody would go. (gasps) And then he would say, that book is not like some holy relic object. It's a bunch of paper with a bunch of words on it. It's what the words contain that's important. They point to Christ and Christ is what is precious to us. And so the reason why this is so important is that in the scriptures we get a spirit empowered display of God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, in my own life, it has become so important to me. When, especially in my younger years, when I was in my twenties, in my thirties, I would battle with depression. I would just wake up and be, as Frank would say, in the molly grubs. I would be downcast. The darkness wouldn't lift. I, very often it was because I was fearful of the future. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what to do about it. And then what would it do? It would get me into moods of anger and grumpiness. I was surly. I wasn't happy because I didn't have any peace. And there was no joy in being alive. Very often it was just going through the motions. And sometimes in the darkest moments, just wishing God would kill me and take me home. You ever been that way? I know you, some of you can relate because it's a common experience because we live in a fallen world. And, and the question that comes to my mind is if God is real, wouldn't you want Him to tell you that? Wouldn't you want Him to show you that He's real? That He really is there and that He really cares. And and especially when we're in those kind of situations, we need to see God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. We need to see glory and we need to see grace. And that's what Psalm 19 shows us, this gift of God's revelation. And it breaks up really nicely, as many of the Psalms do, because they're songs and they have verses uh, broken up typically into paragraphs in your Bible. But here in verses 1-6 to of Psalm 19, we see God's glory revealed through creation God's glory revealed through creation and then in verses 7 to 11 we see God's grace revealed through the scriptures so God's glory and God's grace and then the psalm ends verses 12 to 14 with a prayer for grace so God's glory in creation verses 1 to 4 the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The revelation of the skies. The heavens are telling the glory of God. And in the Hebrew, it's it's this idea of just continuous. It's on repeat. It's on loop. The heavens are continually telling the glory of God. And David, who wrote the psalm as a shepherd, spent countless nights under the open sky. Seeing the glory of God in the heavens. Countless days under the open sky. Think about this upcoming solar eclipse. I just purchased the glasses this week so my kids won't go blind. The $2 glasses or $1 glasses or whatever they are on the 21st. It's going to be a a sight there. The airline tickets to get to areas where it is 100% solar eclipse are through the roof in prices to see this thing. It's going to be one of the most amazing sights in the skies that we'll see in our lifetime. And this tells the glory of God. The heavens are declaring it, they're telling it. The stars, I would love to look up at the stars. We used to have an app on our phone and on our iPad where you could hold it up and it would tell you the constellations and you move it around the night sky and it shows you what all the names of the constellations are. David here says, as he looked up at the night sky, at the daytime sky, the heavens were constantly telling of the glory of God, looking past the creation to the creator, the one who made it. Now, now the question that arises is, what does this word glory mean? Glory is one of those words that we sort of know what it means, but if you were to ask us to write it down on a piece of paper and share it out loud, we'd be like hesitant, like, mmm, I'm not sure I could define it. I know what it means, but I'm not sure. Well, glory is the sum total of, of God's attributes, his excellencies, his nature. Think about it this way: Steph Curry of the Warriors, his glory as a basketball player is in his accomplishments. In his statistics, right? He's got so many of them, I had to write some of them down. He's a two-time NBA champion. He's a two-time MVP. He's a two-time, four-time All-Star. He was the scoring leader in 2016. He was also the steals leader in 2016. Five times he's the three-point field goals leader. Five times. He's, in the regular season, he has the record for most three-pointers made at 402 in one season. Most regular consecutive games made with a three point, he went 157 games in a row and scored a three pointer. Most consecutive playoff games with a three pointer, 75. And Steph Curry and Clay Thompson are the first players to make 200 plus three pointers in five consecutive seasons. That means he didn't, it wasn't a one off. He didn't do it in one season, he did it over and over and over again. Most three pointers made in a game, 13. Most points scored in an overtime period, 17. And of course, that means he's the Warriors franchise leader in three-point field goals ever made. If you want to say who's the best three-point shooter in the NBA, what would you say? Steph Curry. What is his glory? His attributes. His glory as a basketball player is seen in the fact that he could shoot a basketball into a hoop from anywhere on that court, it seems like. And he does it all the time. Now multiply that by a bazillion. God's glory is seen in what he's made and what he's done and in who he is. And the heavens are shouting it out, they're declaring it. In fact, over in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says the same thing. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For his, that's God's, invisible attributes, Namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made so that they, that is, mankind, is without excuse. God's glory is seen in creation. And in Psalm 19, it says, the heavens are telling, declaring the glory of God and the sky proclaims His handiwork. His handiwork. That idea of his handiwork, it's his finger play. This didn't take him a bunch of effort. This didn't wear God out to make this universe. It was like his finger play. It's like when your kids bring home their first finger painting from kindergarten and you put it on the fridge because you're so proud. And that little green thing, you say, who is that? Well, that's you, Dad. Oh, I'm green? Yeah. Oh, I thought that was a frog or something. The sky proclaims the handiwork, the finger play of God. And I love in Scripture that in Isaiah, multiple times in Isaiah, it says, though all of creation is the finger play of God, as it were, the handiwork, redemption, salvation, God rolls up his sleeves and bears his arm. What a picture, isn't it? That the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, Who we know is Jesus, the Son of God. He enters into the world and enters into this creation in order to redeem us, in order to save us. But here we see the sky is proclaiming his handiwork. You know what's going on in the heavens? God flies a flag, as it were, and says, guess what? The king is at home. He's at home. He's here. There's not one maverick molecule in the universe, as R.C. Sproul loves to say. He is at home and he's ruling and he's reigning. Verse 2 of Psalm 19, day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. It's like one day picks up where the previous day left off in the story. Oh, yesterday I looked at the skies and it was proclaiming the glory of God. And then the day ended and I woke up and the new day starts. And oh, guess what? The glory of God is still going on, still being proclaimed. Last summer I read a series called The Wingfeather Saga to my kids excellent series just amazing series Andrew Peterson who wrote it he's a musician a songwriter but he also wrote really good writer and this story of redemption that he tells that that mirrors uh, mirrors the gospel story is just a joy but the kids they loved it because every chapter ended on a cliffhanger and so I'd end at night and I'd end the chapter and it was a cliffhanger it was like an old serial like Batman right same bad time same bad channel It'd be there tomorrow to find out if Batman was going to die. And you want to know and you want to say what's going to happen next. This is what the creation shouts out about God's story of what he's doing. Then, verse 3, it says, There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. That no matter what language or dialect you speak, you can understand the message of creation. That's what the psalmist is saying. Doesn't matter what age of history you lived in it doesn't matter where on the planet you are it doesn't matter what language you speak what dialect you speak as you look at the creation you can see the glory of God and so that's the revelation of the skies in verses one to four and then he goes on to speak of the revelation of the sun in verses four to six he says in them in the skies he set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there's nothing hidden from its heat. We know that in Brentwood. There is nothing hidden from the sun's heat. No one can escape the message of creation. Even the sun marches like a mighty preacher across the sky to proclaim the glories of God. But even the sun has to obey the Father of lights, James 1. So whenever we see creation... This is what we have to remember. We look past the creation to the Creator. It's like going to Yosemite. We were there this summer. We're there almost every year. And every year, I mean, if there's a place on earth that I would be tempted to worship as creation, it would be Yosemite. It's, it's beautiful. And this is, this is something that was created in a fallen world because of glaciers and ice melt and ruin, really. And yet the beauty of it, the, the waterfalls, the, the, the mountains, the, I've climbed Half Dome twice, and the sight from the top is incredible. It's much easier to go over to, uh, drive up over to uh, Glacier Point and look across. It's also beautiful, isn't it? But, but when we go to Yosemite, I can't help but talk to my kids. They're probably completely sick of it. Because I can't help but talk to my kids and go past the creation of the Creator and say, isn't God glorious? Look at this creation that He made. Why? Because there's no healing, really, in beholding ourselves. Right? There's much greater healing in beholding splendor than beholding ourselves. That's the words of John Piper. I didn't make that up. That would be nice if I made that up. It would be quotable. There's more healing in beholding splendor than in beholding self. What does that mean? We go to the mountains, we go to the ocean... We go to wherever we go because we want to see the beauty of this creation because we know it brings healing. We picked up Delaney from the airport last weekend, and we just had to stop by the ocean in Pacifica just to stand there for 10 minutes just because of the joy of being near the ocean. And I know not everybody enjoys that, but us who have grown up in the Bay Area love to go to the ocean. There's greater healing and beholding splendor. And what God says here, what David says in this passage is that there is something about the heavens and the earth and all of creation that declares the glory of God. And if you want to be healed, you need to see the glory of God. So God's glory is revealed in his creation. Even the sun, as it rises and sets every day, and we kind of take that for granted, don't we? Maybe not everybody. I bet the farming community doesn't take it for granted in town. They want that sun to come so that that corn will grow, so that we'll buy it and eat it because it's so good. God's glory is revealed through the creation, but Romans 1 tells us that God's glory is not enough to save, God's glory is only enough to condemn. Because of the fall, Romans 1 says, people worship the creation rather than the creator. And they're without excuse in verse 20 as we read, but that's not enough to save, it's enough to condemn. So that everyone's without excuse, and so what we need is we need God's grace revealed through the scriptures. And that's what verses 7 to 11 talk about. We need the message of the gospel to come to us to bring healing and salvation to us. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey. Drippings of the honeycomb, moreover, By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. See, the Scriptures are clearer than nature. Nature declares, nature proclaims, nature pours out, nature displays God's glory, His majesty, His wisdom, His power, His invisible attributes. Are clearly seen, but scripture is greater because it reveals God's grace, reveals Him as the Lord, verse 7, as Yahweh, the one who keeps His promises, the one whose words are always yes and amen. Think about how inclusive David's psalm is here about the scripture, about the Bible. Six titles are given the law of the Lord, verse 7, the testimony, verse 7, the precepts, verse 8, the commandment, verse 8. The fear, verse 9, the rules, verse 9. In other words, what he's saying is all of it. All of the Scripture, all of the Bible, all of these things are true. He's not trying to break it up into sections. He's just trying to say, come up with a, a, a variety of ways in poetic form to say all of the Word of God can do this. And what is it that it consists of? He gives six attributes of Scripture. He says it's perfect. He says it's sure. And when he says sure, The testimony of the Lord is sure. What he means by that is in a world of uncertainty, we can rest on the word because it's sure. It's certain. We'll never be disappointed because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his word never changes. It's right. What does he mean by that in verse 8? The precepts of the Lord are right. What he means is like a good doctor gives the right medicine, the word gives the right wisdom. You want to know the right thing to do in your situation? Get in the Word. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. It's true. And then he gives six effects of reading the Scriptures. He says the law of the Lord is perfect. The first one, it revives the soul. It revives or restores the soul. If your soul is weary and downcast and you can't, See the darkness lifting. If you're in the battle with depression and doubt, you can't sleep at night and you lay awake thinking about the future in your life and all those things, the word of God, the law of the Lord is perfect and it can revive the soul. It can restore your soul. It can bring you joy. I mentioned that at the beginning that I battled in my 20s and 30s especially with depression and the habit I got into is I would just start in Psalm 1 and I would read the Psalms until I was no longer depressed. Sometimes I'd have to read through all 150. Sometimes more than once. But I was claiming this promise right here in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect and it revives the soul. And so, Father, I'm going to keep reading your word until it revives my soul. And the reason I read the Psalms is because the Psalms are the, the heart song of the people of God of the Old Testament. And in it, they bear their heart about what they're going through and what they're struggling with. And how they don't have peace and how they see the wicked thrive and and where is God and and I'm downcast and why am I downcast, O my soul? Yet I will trust Him. Over and over the Psalms speak to our common human experience in this fallen world and our need for God, our need for Christ. The law of the Lord is perfect. The first thing it does, it revives the soul. Second thing it does in verse 7, it makes wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And when he says simple here, he's talking about simple minded people. People that that don't have a lot of wisdom. They, they, They don't know what to do in a lot of situations, but the word of God is able to even make them wise. It can make wise the simple, it can give us wisdom to know the right thing to do. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. I love this about the Word of God because so often we think the Word of God is like shackles. It's like a burden. Yeah, we have to obey it, but man, it's like a straitjacket and it's going to make us boring It's going to make us think life is just miserable and in a prison. No. The Word of God, when we obey it, when we listen to it, when we see it for what it is, that it's right, like good medicine, it rejoices our hearts. It allows us to live life without regret. And I don't know about you, but that is a wonderful thing to have, no regret. In fact, some of us are so bound up with regret about how we used to live, we impose it upon our kids. And think they're going to go through the exact same thing as us because we have all these regrets and we don't live in joy. We live in fear. And we live in bondage. We need the Word of God to show us what is right and have it rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eye. And this idea in the Hebrew, imagine an eye that's dim because of grief. Dim because of sorrow. There's no twinkle, there's no sparkle in the eye anymore because of the cares of life. The word of God is able to enlighten the eyes, bring the sparkle back to the eyes. And here it's in parallel with rejoicing the heart. So joy to the heart and a gleam in the eye. That's the life we ought to have in Christ. Christ said he came to give us life that we might have it abundantly. He came to bring us joy so that our joy would be full. And yet, we as Christians so often live with a frown on our face, live as if we have no hope and no joy and no future. The Word of God is what we need to be in so that we have a rejoicing in our heart and an enlightening twinkle in our eye. It endures forever. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The Word of God is going to endure forever. Forever. We are never going to regret obeying it, submitting to it, loving it. It's righteous altogether. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You want to do the right thing? You want to be found right, righteous, holy as God is holy? We need to be in the Word of God. See, I found the Scriptures to be the answer to all of my greatest needs. When I wake up downcast and the darkness won't lift, it revives my soul and brings real healing through the gospel. When I'm fearful of the future and I don't know what's going to happen or what to do about it, it makes wise the simple, granting the fear of the Lord and the revelation of His will. When I get in moods of anger and grumpiness and I'm surly, I love that word surly, I'm not happy because I don't have any peace. It rejoices my heart and it brings inner peace. And when I don't have any joy in being alive, I'm just going through the motions or even those times when I wish God would just kill me and take me home to be with him, it enlightens the eyes and expresses joy in being alive and gives a sense of purpose. This is what the word of God does. This is the gift of God's revelation to us. And so our greatest desire should be to place ourselves in and under the word. Look at verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. It brings greater wealth than gold and greater pleasure than honey. It's the greatest treasure and the greatest joy in the world, the Word of God. Why? Because it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's where it's going. In the Word, we see Christ, and Christ reveals the Father. You see, in our day and age, it's better than being a YouTube star. It's better than being rich and famous. It's better than Instagram followers. It's better than sex or drink or drugs. The Word of God is greater wealth than gold and greater pleasure than honey. Why? Verse 11, By them as your servant warned in keeping them, there's great reward. Why? Because it changes us. It keeps us from a life of sin and regret and brings the greatest reward. The word brings satisfaction and joy and delight so that we'll not be enticed and tempted by the passing pleasures of sin. We should love the scriptures, seek to know them, meditate on them. You see, this is is why God gave the scriptures. Genesis, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that the word of God, Hebrews 1 tells us, God spoke various times, in various ways, to our fathers through the prophets. Giving them all sorts of warnings, all sorts of promises, all sorts of hope. Particularly about the Messiah, this one who was going to come and restore everything that was lost in the garden. But in these last days, Hebrews 1-2 says, God has spoken to us in His Son, through whom He made the worlds. And so the Lord Jesus Christ comes on the stage He, as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises, as the Word of God comes and reveals grace and truth in John 1 to us so that we could be a part of God's family, we could have hope and joy and righteousness in Him, and all of the promises of the Gospel, forgiveness of sins, being justified by grace through faith, being brought into His family and adopted as sons and daughters of God. All of these things we have because of the promises of the Word of God that are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we read this psalm and it speaks of the Word of God, the Word points to Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He told them they were foolish because they searched the Scriptures because in them they think that they might have life right? They want life. And so they search the scriptures and, and, and the word Jesus uses there of them searching. It's as if this is their, this is their profession. This is their hobby. This is what consumes their entire life is searching the scriptures. But he says, you've missed the whole point because all those scriptures point to me. Remember that? And so this is what we want to see in the word of God. Like I said, it's not a lucky rabbit's foot. We we don't memorize scripture ripped out of context just so that we can know a lot of scripture and we can get awana awards and, and we can have plaques on our wall. We memorize it because this is the wisdom that's from God that points to Christ. It reveals the gospel. And what we want to do is we wanna apply the gospel to our lives. We wanna live out of the gospel, we wanna live out of who we are in Christ because we've been united to Him. And so we need to be in the Word. Not in a superstitious way, but in a way that we would search and see Christ in the Word and see all of His sufficiency for all of our needs. That's another message I'm going to preach in a couple weeks. See, in the Scriptures, by the Spirit of God, we see the glory of God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the Word tells us. And so David, in Psalm 19 here at the end, he prays for grace, verses 12-14. to Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The only way to be forgiven, to be blameless, David is hoping in the promises of God regarding the Messiah. He knows about this because God told him, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. Remember that in in 2 Samuel 7? And David says, wow, you've spoken of my house for a long time to come. David had wanted to build a a house for God, a temple for God. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. And one of your descendants is going to be that Messiah that was promised way back in the garden. Who's going to crush the serpent's head and restore what was lost. And so David, the way he was saved, the way he knew he could be forgiven his transgressions was because he believed the promises of God regarding the Messiah that was yet to come. He didn't know his name was going to be Jesus. We live on this side of the cross, but we are saved the same way, believing in the promises of God regarding the Messiah, Jesus, that he died for our sins, that he was our substitute, that he gave his life to be our ransom and our redemption so that we could have life and be forgiven. And David says, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Then I shall be blameless. The only way to be blameless and innocent is to be in Jesus. To be in Christ. And here David, praise and prayer are always mingled. As we see who God really is and who we really are, David's prayer becomes our prayer. Because when we see the glory of God and we see the grace of God, we know that God is perfect and we're not. And what we need is we need God's grace because we could never earn his perfection. We could never earn his forgiveness. And so we have a prayer of mercy to say, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive my sins, forgive my faults. There are many. I've rebelled, I've gone astray. And there's two ways of sinning in these verses. Verse 12 is the tangled web of self-deceit. This web of self-deceit. He says, who can even discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. What's he talking about? It's like looking in the mirror and saying, I don't even know who you are. You ever feel that way? That sometimes we don't know the self-deceit that we have and we don't even think we're sinning and that we're wrong. I don't always know when I hurt someone. I don't always know when I'm puffed up with pride. I don't always know when I'm seeking my own glory rather than the Lord's glory. That's the nature of self-deceit. We need the Word of God to expose it in us. Because it has a way, Hebrews 4. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and it divides between soul and spirit and joint and marrow and what does it do? It discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. You ever had your kids when you say, why did you do that? And they say, I don't know. It might be they didn't know. They might be telling the truth. You don't always have to believe they're lying when they said they didn't know. The heart is deceitful and it deceives ourselves. Sometimes we don't know. Now, sometimes they are lying. So David says, I can't even discern all of my own errors. Declare me innocent of hidden faults. Would Would you expose these self-deceitful type of sins where I could be puffed up with pride and, and, and seeking my own glory rather than the Lord's glory and, and keep me from those. And then verse 13, it's this high-handed, willful sin. He says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Don't let them have dominion over me. Saying, you're not the boss of me. Or presuming upon His grace. It, 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 one of the hardest things is in, in the midst of divorce when I hear christian christians who are getting divorced say well god's going to forgive me even though i'm going to do this divorce and i know it's wrong because that's what he does is he forgives that's this kind of presumptuous sin high-handed presuming upon the grace of god and what does it say about those sins they actually dominate you when you think that you're in charge and you want to not the boss of me they're going to have dominion over you you're not going to be free it's not as if you kick god off and now you're your own master no the sin is going to be your master and you're going to, life is going to be a mess and regret. David says, Forgive me for the sins I've committed unknowingly and give me power to resist and not commit the willful sin. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Give me power not to commit those sins. That's why he ends with this beautiful prayer in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight o oh lord my rock and my redeemer i love what he, he he says okay the words of my mouth that come out of my mouth the meditations that i think on in my heart in my mind as i wake up in the morning as i go to bed at night i don't want them to just be acceptable to me my standard of righteousness i want them to be acceptable to you lord And ultimately, I know that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will never earn me favor with you because what does he say at the end? You're my rock. In other words, you're the only foundation I have, the only standing place, and you're my redeemer. You're the one who has to buy me out of the slave market, as it were, and free me from these sins that have dominion. So, I know ultimately it's about your grace, and it's a prayer for grace. You need to be my rock. You need to be my redeemer. You need to be the one that changes the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth. Remember what Jesus said? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it's not what goes into you like food that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of you. And Jesus' remedy is you need to be born again, you need a new heart. You need to be changed. And the way you're changed and born again is you believe the gospel. You believe the message about Jesus that he came to die for your sins and take your place so that you could be forgiven and be in the kingdom of God. And when you believe that message, not only are you given a new standing as a child of God, you're given a new nature, you're born again, born from above. You're given a new heart, new affections. So that the words of your mouth and the meditation of your heart will be acceptable in God's sight. So, how ought we to think of this? Turn over to John 1. Over and over in the Bible, there's this connection between God's work in creation and God's work in giving the Scriptures. It's God's revelation. If you were to read a systematic theology, it would be called general revelation that's given through creation and special revelation that's given in the Word of God. And that's what I've been talking about all morning. And here in John 1, we, we see it again. In the beginning was the Word, verse 1, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything that was made. So here we see God the Father and God the Son together. In the beginning, whatever beginning you want. Pick a beginning. They already were. That's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So from eternity past, in the happy land of the Trinity, before creation, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, were in perfect fellowship and communion with one another and God the Father had a plan to create the worlds, the universe. And here we see in John 1:3, that He made everything through the Word, the Son, the second person of the Godhead. Turn over to Colossians 1, verse 15. "He, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, that is the Son, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, through Him and for Him. See what Colossians is adding to this thought here? Not only did the Father create all things in the world through the Son, God actually created all things for the Son as a gift to the Son, as it were. He created all things including us in order that He could give them to the Son. So that the Son would have be head over all things. It's what we're saying in all glory be to Christ. And in Hebrews 1-2, God has spoken in these last days, I quoted it earlier, through the Son. So, the way we receive this revelation of the Word of God is through the Son. God the Father is revealed through the Son and then by the Spirit. We could turn to Psalm 33, 6 and see how all of creation was made by the Spirit of God. In John six sixty-three, it's the Spirit who gives life. As a general principle, whether it's life in this world in creation or new life in salvation. It's the Spirit who gives life. There's this Trinitarian shape of creation. There's a Trinitarian shape of revelation as well. It's the Father through the Son speaking the gospel and the word of God by the Spirit, Spirit inspiring the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, so that we have this revelation so that we know about God's glory and God's grace. And what is all of this for? Colossians 1.16 tells us, we are made for the Son. We're made to give glory to the Son. It's why it's most appropriate that the Son, the second person of the Godhead, came and became a man, not the Father, not the Spirit. Have you ever thought about that? Why is it that the Son is the one who took on Himself, a human body, a human nature, forever, and is the one who came down and entered into this creation and redeemed us? It's most fitting because everything was made through Him, and everything is made for Him. Colossians 1.16 And so going from here, as we think about this gift of God's revelation, we think about everything that we have in the Word of God, it ought to bring us joy and hope as we wake up tomorrow morning that we could live our lives with happiness and joy, enlightening the eyes, restoring the soul for the glory of Christ. We were made for the Son. And we ought to give our lives to Him in service to Him. And so this is... The gift of God's revelation to us. And the incredible thing is that the gift of God's revelation to us doesn't end in this life. It says that we've been seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And so with Christ, we're going to inherit all things. We're going to rule and reign with Him for all eternity. And so if we don't have, from the world's perspective, hope and joy for the future in this life, there is hope and joy indestructible in the life to come. He's going to make everything right. He's going to make all things new. He's going to recreate the world. And we will be vindicated. We will be declared to be sons and daughters of God to a watching world that has mocked and scorned us and taken advantage of us. And this is what the Word of God reveals. And so I want to encourage you this morning. I pray that you would have great hope going from here. That you have purpose. You're still here on this earth. The Lord hasn't taken you home yet. That means He has work for you to do. He can give you wisdom through His Word. He can give you joy and hope and peace. And ultimately, it's all found in Christ. And so cling to Christ. All we have is Him. Cling to Him. He is sufficient. Second Peter 1, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of Him who called us. Father, thank You for the Word this morning and this great song of proclamation and joy about Your revelation in this creation that reveals Your glory and in Your Word that reveals Your grace. This mercy and grace that we have at the cross of Christ. May we delight in it. May we just rest in it today. It is sure, it's certain, it's right, it is trustworthy, it endures forever. will never be put to shame. So Father, would you encourage my brothers and sisters, you know what they're going through. By your Spirit, would you remind them of the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. May they find their rest in Him today. I pray in Jesus' name.